Hi, this is Hannah Langdell and Rachel Hine, Duke Plastic Surgery residents on The Resident Review, a Duke Plastic Surgery podcast. This is a lecture series designed to aid in preparation for our yearly in-service examination. Our goal is to take you through high-yield topics along with experts in their respective fields in order to maximize your knowledge of potential scores. We would like to thank Allergan for their continued support. We will be discussing carpal instability, particularly perilunate fractures and dislocations. These are commonly tested in-service topics, as well as clinically relevant as prompt diagnosis and reduction is critical in these injury patterns. Today we have Dr. Richard, orthopedic hand surgeon and program director for the Duke Hand Surgery Fellowship. He's also my mentor. Thank you, Dr. Richard, for being here with us today. You guys are too kind. Thank you for having <laughs> me. It's my pleasure to be here. Um, Hannah, do you want to get us started? Sure. So we will start with probably the most complicated topic, I think, of this talk, which is types of instability. Carpal instability dissociative refers to instability within a carpal row. Examples of these are scapholunate or lunotricuitral ligament tears or perilunate instability. This generally involves an intrinsic ligament injury and leads to counter-rotation between the radial and ulnar components of the carpal row. Carpal instability non-dissociative occurs when the bones within each carpal row are normally constrained, but support has been lost either between the rows or between a row and its neighboring structure. An example of this is mid-carpal instability. And extrinsic ligaments are most likely injured in this case. Did I have that right so far? That's perfect. Okay. It's a complex topic, but you nailed it. That's perfect. Okay. And then finally, we have carpal instability complex which incorporates each of the above said elements and denotes marked loss of ligamentous support. An example of this is perilunate dislocation. Uh, Rachel, do you want to go through lunate posture? Yeah, so this is kind of all on the same spectrum, but we talked a little bit in our previous lecture about scapholunate injuries about dorsal intercalated segment instability, which refers to abnormal lunate extension seen on lateral radiographs. This most commonly is associated with scapholunate ligament tears, which unleak the lunate from the flexion moment that the scaphoid imparts. Its counterpart, volar intercalated segmental instability, describes abnormal flexion of the lunate on lateral radiographs. This common, most commonly occurs with disruption of the lunotriquetral ligament, which releases the lunate to flex along with the scaphoid, and can also occur with generalized ligamentous laxity leading to these dissociative patterns we talked about earlier, i.e. mid-carpal instability. And then there is ulnar translocation and dorsal translocation of the carpus involved displacement of the carpus as a unit with the lunate moving in the direction specified. So with all of this kind of setting the basis for what we're going to talk about, we'll next talk about perilunate instability patterns and perilunate dislocations. And so with this, we'll start with force transmission. First, we have greater arc injuries, and these involve an arc of injury that is transmitted through and fractures the involved carpal bone. For example, a transscaphoid perilunate dislocation. And the scaphoid is the most commonly fractured bone and typically fractures through the middle third. And the capitate, hamate, radiostylate, and lunate have also all been reported. Lesser arc injuries involve a purely soft tissue injury and can disrupt multiple ligamentous structures without fracture. Do y'all know why the scaphoid is most commonly fractured? I do. Um. <laughs> The scaphoid is the most commonly fractured carpal bone because it has a unique position within the carpus of the wrist. So when you look at the wrist, and we talked about the anatomy in the last one, the scaphoid is the only one that crosses essentially both carpal rows. 
if you look at an x-ray, the distal pole of the scaphoid certainly makes an articulation with the trapezium and the trapezoid distally, but it is beyond the arc of the rest of the midcarpal joint at the capitohamate proximal portion. So that is what leads to the incredibly complex kinematics that we talked about Mm -hmm. before. If you look at arthritis in the wrist, 90% of all wrist arthritis has some component somewhere around the scaphoid. But it's that unique position of the scaphoid and the resultant complex kinematics that puts it at risk for all of these pathologies. And by and large, when we talk about perilunate dislocations, the lesser arc injuries are more common, correct? Or do you see them pretty? The ones that I've reduced in the ED mainly have been the lesser arc with an occasional greater arc injury. Correct. Correct. I think the overall incidence is higher for the lesser arc or the ligamentous only as compared to the greater arc. And just to talk a little bit about these instability or ligamentous injuries in general, including scaphalunate ligament injuries, you know, um, and perilunate. When we talk about chronicity, acute is within about a week. Subacute is one to six weeks, which we talked about on our last lecture is kind of the threshold where we talk about repair versus either reconstruction or other salvage procedures. And then chronic is greater than six weeks. So once you get to that point of chronic, that's important because primary ligament healing is unlikely. And we can next talk about perilunate dislocation. So this can occur from forceful wrist extension, ulnar deviation, and intercarpal supination. There's a paper by Mayfield that described the accepted sequence of perilunar instability. So the injury occurs from radial to ulnar, and this leads to a disruption of the scaphalunate ligament or scaphoid fracture, just stage one. And then stage two is disruption of the lunocapitate articulation. And stage three is a lunotriquetral ligament injury, uh, which leads to dissociation of the carpus from the lunate, uh, resulting in dislocation of the lunate from its fossa into the carpal tunnel. And this is usually still attached by the short radiolunate ligament. And this is stage four. The finding characteristic is dislocation of the capitate head from the lunate concavity, and it usually dislocates dorsally. Do you want to talk about the Hernsberg staging? Yeah, so I don't hear this as often, but I think this kind of uh, describes the position of the lunate. And so stage one, we'll still have the lunate in the fossa, which is by and large what I generally see um, in these perilunate injuries, 2A is out of the fossa but rotated less than 90 degrees, and 2B is rotated more than 90 or basically in your carpal tunnel. I did have an interesting point. So actually, I reduced one of these on Sunday night, and I, I guess it's a point to say that the capitate sits dorsally on the lunate at a resting position generally. Mm-hmm. And so I had reduced this dislocation. That was something I didn't recognize before. And it was just an interesting thing to see. Mm-hmm. And so I think that's something to point out when you are reducing these injuries, the capitate does sit dorsally. You just have to keep that in mind. Exactly. And when you lose all those other stabilizers in your post-reduction films, it's going to look a little bit unusual Yeah. because you don't have all those stabilizers there, which is why they'll need to get fixed. But, uh, but you should see restoration of on a lateral of the capitate, lunate, and the radius all in the same linear line and plane. Uh, To go back to the classification system just a little bit, the Mayfield classification is a very classic paper, 1980. And what he did was he tried to 
demonstrate this dislocation by actually loading cadaver wrists in full extension. Uh, and he got the sequence of events down from that. Your stage one is essentially your scaphoid mm -hmm. ligament injury, like we talked about. And then the perilunate, which is a perilunate dislocation is when the lunate is still in the fossa and typically the rest of the corpus is dorsal, mm -hmm. is your stage three. And the lunate dislocations are different from the perilunate. Mm -hmm. The lunate is now gone and it's that stage four where the capitate will knock the lunate out of the fossa and assume that position within the lunate fossa and the lunate will spill out into the carpal tunnel. And the radiographic finding that people will say the eponym is a spilled teacup of that lunate uh, dumping its tea into the carpal tunnel, like the Boston Tea Party. So <laughs> had to get Boston stage four. Stage four. Okay. Stage four. So Boston makes it in. Yes. But the, so what Guillaume Herzberg, who's in Lyon, France, did is really just took the stage three and stage four, the perilunate dislocation and the lunate dislocation, and essentially said stage one is all the perilunates, and stage two is the lunate dislocations. Uh, and any good classification system, this is just good advice in general, should do two things. It should guide treatment and it should predict outcome. Um, so the Herzberg classification does do that in a sense that the, he separated the lunate dislocation into 2A and 2B, depending on the position of the lunate within the fossa. And it does help guide treatment because if the lunate is only minimally spun into the carpal tunnel, you have a chance at reducing those. Mm -hmm. And he advocates for attempted close reduction in a 2A. But if it's a 2B where the lunate is more than 90 degrees out and really dumped all its T into the distal form in the carpal tunnel, those are not able to be reduced typically. And there's concern about disruption of the short, short radial lunate. Exactly, Rachel. So, and that's your blood supply to your lunate. So he advocates not attempting a close reduction there. And other authors who have written about this have advocated for a similar philosophy. So uh, that's Guillaume Herzberg's view on arc injuries, uh, lesser and greater arc injuries. Just briefly to review the history and physical. So these normally will result from a high energy injury. And physical exam, you'll note wrist deformity, pain, and oftentimes, like we talked about, we can see median nerve paresthesias when the lunate is compressing on the uh, carpal tunnel. So do you typically release the carpal tunnel in 2A injuries if, if you think you have a close reduction? That's a great question. My thoughts on the carpal tunnel are, uh, one, the timing of the symptoms. So a lot of times there'll be median nerve paresthesias at the time of injury that happen immediately because as the carpus goes dorsal, it drapes the median nerve over the, the mm -hmm. lunate in the distal radius and it'll get contused and immediately have symptoms. Or if it's a, a true lunate dislocation, the presence of the lunate in the carpal tunnel can cause median nerve symptoms. That always happens right at the time of injury and the reduction may alleviate that. So if that goes away or is not evolving, getting worse, then then I will not operate immediately. If it goes away, I won't do a carpal tunnel release when I fix them. If it persists but was not evolving, I will do a carpal tunnel release at the time of surgery. And Rachel reduced one of these uh, just a couple of days ago and I saw him in clinic yesterday and he still had some median nerve paresthesias that were not worsening but they were present. So we're gonna do a carpal tunnel release at the time of his reduction. I think that should be differentiated acutely from the patient who did not start with median nerve dysesthesias, but it's worsening. 
because that is probably more indicative of hematoma in the carpal tunnel and something involving, and you don't want to say compartment syndrome, but it is probably analogous to swelling in a closed space around a nerve that probably warrants attention sooner rather than later. So I'd be more uh, urgent slash emergent with that scenario. That's a good point. Thanks. Yeah. So we'll go over imaging next. Typically, we'll get called after we've got PA and lateral radiographs of the wrist. When you get a lateral, just be reminded that the appropriate lateral is with the third metacarpal collinear to the longitudinal axis of the radius. And in these cases of carpal dislocations, you're probably less likely to see that exact collinearity, but that's just a reminder. In these perilunate dislocations, you will see disruption of Galula's lines, which is defined as the normally continuous arches created by connecting the images of the subchondral lines of the proximal surfaces of the proximal carpal row and the distal surfaces of the proximal carpal row and proximal surface of the distal carpal row. So basically on that PA, those linear lines that we see, those are Galula's lines and will be disrupted. Um, another sign that we can see is a scaphoid ring sign, which is evidence that there is flexion of the scaphoid, meaning that at the very least there is some instability between the scaphoid and the lunate. And then Traction imaging is also kind of important. I feel like it makes it a little more clear what is going on once you get some traction views, mm -hmm. particularly in, in any fracture really, but um, these are also helpful. And then assessment of reduction should also include assessment of ulnar carpal translation. And what we mean is, is the proximal row translating ulnarly on the radius and ulna. You know, normally the lunate is covered partially by the radius and that's 40 to 49% in both neutral and radial deviation, but sometimes in these injuries that you can see ulnar translocation of the carpus. And in that instance, when you take them for definitive fixation, it's important to reduce the lunate back into its proper position. Thank you, Rachel. Yeah, the lunate is the keystone to the carpus. So that is the most important bone to get right. And then you can build everything back to it. Mm -hmm. We will next review treatment. The initial treatment always consists of close reduction, except in the case we talked about two knee injuries where close reduction was not recommended. In order to perform reduction, the maneuver combines axial traction, wrist extension, and a thumb stabilizing the volar lunate before flexing the hand back over the lunate to reduce the dorsal perilunate dislocation. The way I think of this is kind of putting the ice cream kind of back on the cone where you're trying to get it kind of over the top. Patients should be examined for signs of acute carpal tunnel syndrome like we've spoke about. And surgery generally should be performed within the first week. Dr. Richard, yeah. can you talk a little bit about the tips and tricks for a closed reduction in the ED? So if we got a consult tonight, can mm -hmm. you talk to us a little bit about that? Absolutely. The Reduction maneuver that Hannah was talking about is Tavernier's maneuver, and it's uh, essentially recreating the deformity with some traction to clear the proximal capitate from the lunate. And then with that traction and that recreation of the extension deformity, you can then try to drop the proximal pole of the capitate back into the lunate and flex to capture the lunate and put it back in a good position. That's for a perilunate injury. If you have a lunate dislocation that you're trying to, to uh, reduce, the other that's the same maneuver that you're gonna you're gonna use. You that second though, right? You, exactly. You, it is described to do a little bit of flexion of the wrist first, just to take tension off of the short radiolunate ligament, mm -hmm. and then you have to add your thumb on the volar side to try and feel the lunate. And when you do that, I, I think it's really important when you look at the wrist 
in general, every single structure, when you think you're pushing on the skateboard to eliminate anything, the surface landmarks are, it's always going to be more proximal than you think. So that when you look at your own wrist and you see the wrist flexion crease, you're already beyond the scaphoid. The, the distal pole of the scaphoid is really at the wrist flexion crease. So when you're feeling for the lunate, it's going to be proximal to the wrist flexion crease, and it's going to be really down at the distal form. But you're going to put your thumb on that area. It should be palpable if it's spilled into the uh, carpal tunnel, and you're going to gently push on the lunate as you do your reduction maneuver that you described before. Anna. And that the only difference being is that it is described to do a little bit of flexion first before you add that extension, traction, flexion, just to take tension off of the short radial lunate ligament. And generally, I'll put them in 10 to 15 pounds of traction and let them sit yeah. for a good long while, particularly, not that I've seen a lot of these, but for perilunate dislocations alone, sometimes the traction will reduce the deformity, and I have seen that. Yeah. So you get yeah. in and you're all excited to perform your closed reduction, and then it's already reduced, yeah. and you're yeah. really sad. Right. Yeah. No, that's, um, a, that's, a great, that's a great point. You probably want to walk away for a few minutes uh, and let them just hang in traction, let ligament ataxis do its work, let the viscoelastic properties of, of ligaments do their thing, um, make sure the patient's comfortable. And you hang them just like arthroscopy, index and long finger. Index and in long the, finger. In, the, in your finger exactly. traps or kind of form finger traps. And then another question, do, will you do a hematoma block in these patients or not? Because I know we're assessing for median nerve symptoms, but these patients are generally uncomfortable. Yeah, I, I I've done it both ways. I actually yeah. like it because I think it helps kind of relax the patient a little bit. But what is your... No, I think that's fine. I, I would probably just use lidocaine instead of marcaine so you can get an exam within an hour or two. But, uh, but I, I think that that's paramount to get the patient comfortable because you're going to be going to the OR with them if you can't get it reduced. Uh, yeah. So if you don't have appropriate anesthesia. Yeah. Then, and that's uh, just a couple cc's. I don't think you want yeah. to fill it up too much where to you can't get your reduction or you're like, you know, creating. That more. sounds like a pretty brutal reduction maneuver to like apply a lot of. You do. It depends. So that I have found, and I think it is described that that the transcapoid fractures are perilunate dislocations are much more difficult to reduce than the perilunate alone. And I guess I'm not as strong as some of my male counterparts, but it does sometimes take me a while. I did have one, it was transcaphoid, and actually the proximal pole of the scaphoid had, had rotated Flipped, 90 yeah. degrees. And that was not apparent until we had our traction views. Um, and we could see that it just didn't look right. Mm -hmm. And that took us a good 45 minutes, an hour. And I find that actually the most painful part of the whole thing for them is their fingers and the finger mm -hmm. traps, because I leave them in traction because I'm not... Even with an assistant, I'm, I have a hard time maintaining traction and doing the reduction maneuver. Mm -hmm. And I don't have it. Do you yeah. have a good answer for that? Because I find like I just am killing their fingers when yeah. I'm doing reduction. I mean, the, the, the other thing that you can do for counter traction is if they are laying down and their fingers are held up and you've got a little bit of weight hanging from the brachium or the arm to, to give your counter traction, you can also add a little extra counter traction by taking a curlex and tying it around the arm so that you can put your foot in it when you're pulling against the... That is so smart. Oh, that's yeah. an orthopedic surgeon. <laughs> that's, a really, that's a really great tip. Yeah, it helps. You just that. need a little extra boost sometimes. Yeah. We do that for distal radius fractures. <laughs> yeah. That's a good... But you have to make sure it's like... Move. You want to make sure it's padded or broad or something yeah. so it's not mm -hmm. like yeah, yeah. constriction yeah. band yeah. of like yeah. arm amputation. Yeah. Well, thank you, Dr. Richard. Okay, we will next talk about the approach for surgery. 
Dr. Richard, do you want to take us through how you would approach one of these patients, either acutely if they're not able to get reduction or if they're presenting, let's say, several weeks to months after the injury? Absolutely. Most of these will be acute because unlike the scapholunate ligament, uh, these are injuries that the patients present with right away. So, so it is more common than not that you have the opportunity to take care of these acutely. The decision between volar and dorsal for me is dependent upon the status of the median nerve. So if the median nerve is involved, then I will do a carpal tunnel release, but I will really do all my fixation from dorsal. If the lunate is not reducible, so if it's a lunate dislocation like that Hertzberg 2B, and you cannot reduce the uh, lunate, then I will do an extended carpal tunnel. So I'll do carpal tunnel, incision down to the uh, volar wrist crease, and I'll do a little jog ulnar, and then come down on the ulnar side of the flexor tendons, and you'll find the lunate within the carpal tunnel. The one caution, absolutely be sure you're not just blazing through the skin because the median nerve will be tented mm-hmm. up against the undersurface of the skin by that oh, displaced lunate. Yeah. So uh, you don't want to be too aggressive in the, in the proximal portion of that incision. But those are the two times that I'll go volar. Some people will talk about closing the space of Poirier, which is a potential space on the front side of the wrist between the arcuate ligaments. And it's where the lunate dislocates into. So it's a potential space in the volar aspect of the lunate and capitate right around the lunocapitate joint, but it's a potential space. So I do, that never made sense to me to close it because it wasn't closed before, which is how the lunate ended up there. Uh, and their problem on the post-op side is stiffness, not instability. So I, I think you're only going to make them stiffer by doing that. And you're probably going to steal a little bit of wrist extension, which you're already going to be struggling to get. So I don't go volar for any other reason except for reduction of the lunate if it's irreducible and for addressing the median nerve if there's paresthesia. So all of my work will be from dorsal and I'll use the extensile dorsal approach, just ulnar to Lister's tubercle. This one ends up being a little bit bigger approach uh, typically than just a SL ligament repair. Uh, But if you transpose EPL tendon, you'll be looking at the second compartment, the ECRL, ECRB, and the fourth compartment, all the common extensors to the digits. You can get a gelpie or a self-retainer between those two, and you're looking right at the dorsum of the wrist with the capsule. Uh, In this case, you can do a ligament sparing approach if you want. I typically just do a longitudinal capsulotomy, uh, but it depends on the situation. Both are totally acceptable. And the first thing you're going to do is you're going to take the lunate, reduce it to the lunate fossa, and correct its uh, rotation if it is extended or or flexed, you're going to put a joystick in it, which is a K-wire, straight into the dorsum of the lunate and put it in the proper position within the lunate fossa with both its radial ulnar correction made and its flexion extension made and temporarily put a radial lunate pin in. That'll hold it there. And then you can take your joystick out. Then you can take your joystick out. And once you have that lunate in the right position, you build everything back. And I typically will build the proximal corporal row first. So I'll put the scaphoid to the lunate and I'll add a couple of K wires from the scaphoid to the lunate to hold that there. Then I'll build the triquetum to the lunate, put a couple of K wires across that interval to hold that there, then build back the, the distal row. Does it matter if you say it's transcaphoid? Does it matter if you correct your lunate position or fix your fracture first? It does. That's a great question. And then I know you're asking because you already know the answer, but it's incredibly hard to fix the scaphoid 
proximal fold of the scaphoid will typically be attached to the lunate. And it's incredibly hard to get control of that if you don't get control of the lunate. So by pinning the lunate within the fossa, you are really gaining control of the proximal piece of the scaphoid and giving yourself something to build back to. So you still want to do that first. I, I will say that it has been described and I've seen it myself. You can have a scaphoid fracture, so transscaphoid, greater arc injury, and still have a scaphoid ligament injury. And that's we had just, that on our last one. Yeah, that's just annoying. That's hard. That was hard. That gives you, you an extra degree of freedom. You made that look really for. hard. I did. <laughs> I snatched defeat from the jaws of victory. <laughs> okay, so radiolunate first. Correct. And then you're basically doing pinning like a box mm -hmm. around. Exactly. That. So you'll then pin, you'll pin the scaphoid to the lunate, you'll pin the triquetrum to the lunate, and then you'll pin the proximal row to the distal row. So I'll put a pin from the scaphoid into the capitate, and then one from the triquetrum into usually pick up a little bit of the handmate and into the capitate as well. So there'll be pins from the proximal to the distal row on both the radial and ulnar side, and then pins within the row from radial to ulna, from scaphoid into lunate and triquetrum. And then just to, this is probably nitpicky, but do you cut them below the skin for the box pinning, correct? I do. Because I do. Because they, they, the biology of ligament healing is really 12 weeks. Yeah. Uh, and you're going to leave them for about eight weeks before you pull them um, because you're going to balance the stiffness that will occur with the motion that you're trying to get. And if you leave them for about eight weeks, you're in good stead to start motion at that time. So pins through the skin, percutaneous. Typically, I think the textbook answer is it's hard to make it past six weeks. We've all mm -hmm. done it. But, uh, but you're going to want to leave these pins for eight weeks. So I cut them below the skin and then just retrieve them at eight weeks. Okay. And then my understanding from some of the literature that I read is that uh, a combined dorsal and volar approach actually has more complications. Do you know why? Is that just the nature of the injury or is that the amount of open wounds or? Yeah, I, I think that uh, I, I, my guess is that it is likely speaking to a higher energy injury that required you to go both volar and dorsal in order to address it. So um, I think their outcomes are probably a little bit worse from that. Mm -hmm. Also, these will swell significantly and adding that volar incision is no small thing. So I only do it when it's absolutely necessary and you're gonna gain me something in the, uh, in the fixation sequence. I, I should say this for completeness sake too, because we didn't say it before, but that radial lunate pin is temporary, will come out at the end because mm -hmm. it will break if you don't do that. <laughs> uh, and then that's cumbersome much harder to get out at the eight-week mark. And then we, you do repair the scaphoid ligament from the dorsum. So you will do the same thing we talked about in the other lecture about putting an anchor in and repairing that acutely. We don't typically go after the lunar triquetral. If you did, you'd go volarly to do that, but that would, again, necessitate that volar incision. And coming through, you'd have to take down some of those volar extrinsic ligaments to get there. And then I have the one more question. Have you ever used a bridge plate for these injuries? I have. Uh, and I think that that is the ideal neutralization for your interosseous ligament repair. So we talked about before, when you flex and extend your fingers, you're in essence driving the long finger metacarpal, the third metacarpal, into the capitate and as a pile driver between the SL interval. And if you put a K wire or two across that interval, that's okay. It's not going to resist it perfectly, but it's okay. Um, and those are only 0.045 inches in diameter. So that's not a lot of fixation, even if you put two. So when you talk about some of the other means of fixing scapolunate ligaments, like a rassel screw, the reduction associated 
scaphalunate repair that Mel Rose and Rosser at Columbia described. You have a screw across there, and that's probably on the order of 2.5 millimeters, which is bigger than the 1.1 millimeter K wires that you're using. And that's a little more rigidly fixed, so it's got better fixation. But the ultimate fixation would be to fix at a fixed distance the long finger metacarpal to the distal radius with the plate and screws, and that way there's no force transmission against your scapulonate ligament as it's trying to heal. So that has worked very well. In order to keep your lunate reduced, you're still having that pin across the to, scaphalunate exactly. to, to, interval. I, exactly, I would still do that. But, I, but is your scaphocapitate, why it's, that's not as necessary because we've neutralized it with the bridge plate, correct? Correct, I still like it because it, it's one more plane against flexion of the scaphoid. So I don't think that it changes the capitate moving mm -hmm. into the SL interval, but I like it to control Prevent flexion of the flexion. scaphoid, exactly, which that'll always try to do because of the position of the scaphoid within the carpus. Got it. This sounds like a very complex reconstruction. <laughs> Are there any situations where you would say, you know, the patient is going to be better served by just doing like a proximal retrophectomy or arthrodesis? I think for the patients that show up late, and we'll sometimes see these, typically these are patients who are injured, perhaps in another country that come here and, and have a late presentation. But a late presentation where it's months out, maybe never reduced, the healing potential of the ligaments is incredibly low at that point. They would be best served by usually a proximal brocarpectomy and just putting the capitate in the lunate fossa and getting them moving. Um, the, the other scenarios are sometimes you'll have an open injury that's not that common, but it is described. And if there are bony injuries are too complex that it is hard to piece together those carpal bones, in order to get the scaffolding there to get the ligamentous repair. I think sometimes you'll do an acute PRC in those settings, but by and large, the reconstruction that we talked about, I would say that's probably 90, 95% of the cases. Okay. And then I think this is going towards more results, but we did have an in-service question that talked about the incidence of radiographic arthrosis in these patients after, after a perilunate dislocation. So I wanna to talk to you a little bit about the timing of that as well as like what percentage we normally see, because that was asked and I thought that was actually quite a difficult question. Right. Um, but I know that arthrosis does not necessarily correlate to symptomatic arthritis in these patients. So can you yeah. kind of comment on those? Yeah, exactly right. The arthrosis and arthritis are different. It's hard to do this to your, to your wrist and not expect changes somewhere down the line. Um, I, I think slack and snack is better delineated in the literature as far as the time course that we understand that those processes to be in the order of 15 to 20 years. Mac et al. Uh, looked at the scaphoid non-union advanced collapse and has a good natural history of that and the same has been done on the slack side. Perilunate is, is again kind of the carpal instability complex which is a combination of the, of the within the row, the dissociative and the non-dissociative uh, so a little bit more going on. I don't know that we have a, a well-delineated time frame for, for when those things change, but I think your point is very good that arthrosis is expected. The cartilage gets dinged. The amount of time that it sits dislocated probably matters to the health of the cartilage, but those changes don't necessarily correlate with symptomatic mm -hmm. limitations. But the outcomes, the number of outcome studies that are out there, uh, I think all these patients, uh, or at least I'd say probably anecdotally two-thirds, three-quarters, will have some degree of that. Um, and then all these patients should expect a loss of motion. Uh, yeah, that's my second leading question. How much do you, 
do you typically see? Yeah, I, I think, and again, this is more anecdotal from my own experience. I picture their outcomes to be very similar to what we expect out of uh, PRC or mm -hmm. four corner fusion, probably about half your normal flexion extension, which the functional arc of motion of the wrist is 50 degrees each of flexion extension. I think that's attainable in these, but that's, that's pushing the limits. And when they get that, I'm pretty happy. And those numbers, or is that someone with a greater arc injury as well, or just someone with? It, yeah, it's a good question. I, I think uh, I think we have to be careful to have apples compared to apples and oranges right. to oranges. But um, they're so rare. Yeah. If the if the other thing, I'd rather have a scaphoid fracture that heals than a scaphoid or scaphoid injury and tear that is incredibly hard to get a good outcome from. So in some ways, I would take the greater arc injury if you could guarantee that my scaphoid would heal. My scaphoid non-union is its own <laughs> set of troubles and you don't really get the slalom that course. We can guarantee it. But, yeah. um, but I think all, if you have a trans scaphoid and the scaphoid heals, I think that those actually do better okay. than the, um, the pure ligamentous ones. Bony heal, we, in orthopedics we say it all the time, it's kind of a joke, but you'd rather have the fracture than the sprain sometimes because the bony healing is so predictable. This is a plastic surgery podcast. But we welcome our guests. <laughs> <laughs> well, do you have any final comments for these injuries or recommendations for residents kind of learning about these uh, or treating them when we see consults? Yeah, the, I think probably the, the big practical thing is to stay vigilant in your assessment of the x-rays. When these are reviewed by primary care docs or ER mm -hmm. docs who aren't used to seeing them, the, there's a huge miss rate of somewhere on the order of 25%. Uh, when you look in uh, in the classic studies. So make sure that you see these before they see you because treating them acutely is much easier than treating them in a delayed fashion. Assess the median nerve pre-intervention so that if you do end up using a hematoma block or something and have some spillage around the median nerve, you still have some idea of their preoperative exam. And then uh, post-reduction x-rays to make sure that you have some reasonable alignment before letting them go. But I think these can be treat in the next couple of days. Don't have to be done acutely overnight if you get a reasonable reduction. Well, thank you so much for being here with us today and talking to us about these complicated topics. Uh, we appreciate it. It was my pleasure. Thank you. It was my pleasure. Thank you for having me. That was fun.